Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, the brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg. Currently worn by world number 24, Jan Leonard Struck, world number 39, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and world number 76, Martina Trevisan. See them at Diadora.com. We have a special announcement. You can use my code APPROVED, A-P-P-R-O-V-E-D, in all caps, at hollabirdsports.com, H-O-L-A-B-I-R-D, sports.com, for 15% off of all performance tennis shoes. I hope you guys use that. She was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and in 1978 blasted onto the tennis scene at the age of 16 years old, defeating Martina Navratilova to reach the finals of the U.S. Open as an amateur. She got to three in the world, won 133 tour-level titles, including 111 doubles titles, and in 1984, with Martina, completed the Grand Slam, the only team to ever do so. She is a Hall of Famer, a prolific broadcaster for ESPN and Tennis Channel, and is an advisor to current world number 22, Donna Vekic. Pam Shriver is today's guest. Now, are you in Brentwood? Do I have that right? Correct. I live in the Brentwood section of uh, West LA. And when did you get home from from Wimbledon? I got home last Tuesday. Um, I was over there with one of my kids and her girlfriend, and they went to some exploration so i just delayed coming home by a day and where were you during that men's final i was mostly at my flat packing up almost two and a half weeks worth of living your obligations for for espn were finished on saturday well actually i can i helped with the breakfast show in the morning uh, breakfast at wimbledon i did a couple of features uh one was um from center court uh about you know the magnitude of the match and there was another one i don't know i did two woman you hear former world number three uh 20 years on tour hall of famer one of the greatest records in all of tennis history that she shares with martina navratilova you won 108 straight matches is that right is that is that a fact it's right about on it yep from what was it? it ended at Wimbledon final 1985. 30 years on the microphone now is wearing a variety of different hats is in Donna Vekic's camp as well. That's Pam Shriver. Uh, Pam, so nice to have you on the show. How's your weather? Um, it's getting hot, but it's we're not as suffering on the west side, Los Angeles, because a lot of people are in the country. So grateful for that. Again, thanks again. As you know, we do the five-set format. The first set is the the off-the-court report. Um, Do we see you on the East Coast coming up? Are you headed to uh, Maryland? Are you headed to Baltimore? Are you headed to D.C.? Usually I get home to the family farm in Baltimore County for a short visit during my three-week U.S. Open stay. So I hope so. But you're not going, you're not involved in any D.C. uh, Mubadala city events no 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 okay um what are your obligations going into the open well i'm gonna work a week for tennis channel during uh the canadian week with the rogers i don't know if it's still called the rogers cup i gotta get up to speed on that (laughs) um i'll work that from here in santa monica so that'll be a, a home home game for me so to speak and then i'll hit the road for fan qualifying week because ESPN now it's a three week it's a three week U.S. Open, it's and then I'll help Donna. I will merge in. Is what I've been doing. I've been getting to the majors a little bit early this year. I did it in Melbourne. I did it in uh, both uh, Paris and for Wimbledon. And I get there a few days early and just kind of help her get organized and ready to go. Now, what is your um, advice regarding coming back from? you know, 20 day trips to Europe. Do you have any sort of ways that you get yourself absolved of jet lag? Well, you know, a couple of ways, I guess when I come back home from a trip, I'm coming home to my three teenagers, my house, my pets, and I got to hit the ground running, catch up on desk stuff. So there's no real time to suffer too much from jet lag. I happen to be a really good early morning person anyway. 
So I just kind of adjust my clock, go to sleep earlier and hope the teens can put themselves to bed. And then I wake up about five and slowly maybe I recover another hour or two of sleep. But it's not that big deal to me. How about when you were on tour? When you're younger, it's easier? You know, what's, what? here's what started to happen to me in my uh, veteran age of doing this, traveling, is I have been getting like sick towards the end of these two-week majors because whether or not you play or you broadcast or you combination broadcast coach, these majors are, they're just a marathon. It's not a sprint. And um, you can probably hear my voice. I'm still recovering. I, I actually started to get a cold during the men's final while I was packing up the flat. So that's the biggest thing I've noticed is just my tiredness. I don't bounce back as quickly. Trips are hard. To be there from first ball to last and even in advance of that is not it is not easy. Listen, let's move into the second set. This is the on-the-court report. Organization in, at Wimbledon was chaotic that first week. Did that surprise you? There were scheduling craziness. The matches were the matches were going on to late, late at night. It some, seemed like it didn't stop. Look, whenever it rains, whether or not you have one roof, two roofs, no roofs, which was during my, my career, it, it does throw the tournament into a lot of chaos. Um, I mean, Donna was on the top half of the women's draw, so she was scheduled five days in a row. She was, you know, fourth match on. She was second match on. She was first match on. And then once finally the weather got a little better, it was like she had to play Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And that's just not what you're used to in a major. So, yeah. Weather throws even the best tournaments into some chaos. We spoke. I saw you at the back end of that first week, and you mentioned that exactly, that it it it, it became a different kind of tournament once that rain came because players had to go back to back to back to back. And some players didn't even start till Thursday. That's right. I mean, people were finishing second rounds before some of the you know players who weren't in show courts. That always seems a, a little unfair, um, but it's it's the way our game works. The the top players are going to be playing on center court and court one where the roofs are. So it was a huge advantage. Um, but then at the end of the day, who ends up winning the women's side? Uh, Von Drosova, who had the top half, tough schedule, weaker half, but she came through and lo and behold. What were your uh, impressions of that run she made? Well, I got to see it up close in the third round because um, the day after Donna came back in an amazing match to beat Sloan Stevens from a set and two five down on court one, had less than 24 hours to get ready for a tough lefty Vondrosova on court 15, which is one of those small courts in between center and court one. So it was a totally di different atmosphere. And I knew it was going to be tough for Donna but if you had told me walking out to watch that match that the winner of that match would go on to win Wimbledon, I would have given you $100,000 that it would be Donna Vekic. But isn't that funny the way fate turns out? What was Bondrasova's quality like? Listen, even in the middle of, uh, well, towards the end of the week one, the third round, she was already playing really stingy, smart, left-handed tennis, right? Using her leftiness to a huge advantage. Um, you could tell, even though she had only won two grass court matches coming into this grass court season, you could see by getting the quarters of Berlin, winning a couple of matches even before she played Don in the 32s, that she was feeling really comfortable on grass. And look, half my 22, 21 singles titles, about half were on grass. I love this surface. And I can tell if somebody's embracing it or fighting it. And she looked tremendous. I was talking with someone about this as well. It was like, you know, her her junior background at being an elite junior seemed like seemed sort of like something that was useful these that that that, that fortnight that she'd been on these big courts that she'd been she'd made deep runs and it seemed like even though we didn't realize she'd been there, she had been there. Yeah, listen, when someone's already been to a major final and she had rolling arrows uh 2019 and then also final of an olympic game those are huge two huge occasions what are you and your uh peers your people taught saying about ons and this paralyzing anxiety that we're seeing from her at the back end of these majors in particular well and i thought this one e even more than any of the other ones because she walked out to that final against von Prosova as as really the favorite certainly the fan favorite as well the sentimental favorite 
And she seemed, the team seemed disorganized. I mean, I was in the ESPN green room when I saw her practicing on center court because there was a storm and they allowed some practices on center court by players. And she walked out, not in the all white attire. She was practicing in a black t-shirt, black shorts. And someone in the club had to come tell her to go back to the locker room. This is the day you're warming up for a final. And then she came out, we, we were live on it during the ESPN's breakfast show. And she came out eight minutes before the run of show said that players were going to be out there. So the whole thing seemed disheveled and out of her normal routine. I mean, and then when she took the court, it she it, she seemed, like I, I, I said, panicked. She seemed panicked. Um, that was tough to watch. Um, any any broad thoughts about that? What needs to happen to kind of get to kind of uh, adjust there? Or is that just the way people handle pressure and it's well, sort of baked in? Well, it's interesting because she had Melanie, her mindset coach there. And I thought her mindset in the, all the matches leading up to the final, I mean, talk about a draw that was just so difficult was on Jabur. And I think that's another thing to take into account who all she had to beat to get to the final. I don't have the draw in front of me, but I think it was Kvitova and it was Andrescu. And then it was, uh, was it Sabalenka? She beat Sabalenka. Yeah, anyway. And she she made a big Rabacana. run. Yeah, because it was a rematch of last year's final. Oh, yeah, so, then, she, yeah, then she beat Rabakina in a yeah, big, so, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it was also, I think her tank was a little empty. And when you're empty, then you then you do start to panic. And she was disorganized. So the whole thing, even though it was unfortunate, it kind of makes sense given the occasion and she was the favorite. And Vondrosa was just there to snap it up. What can you tell us about Carlitos, you know, taking Novak out? Um, again, I know that you're so tight to the tournament. You must have been seeing him around. You must have seen seeing that action. Alcaraz is impressive in, in many, many ways. He'd already shown be, to be so young, to be one in the world on the ATP Tour, win a U.S. Open. You know, even the way he won Madrid last uh, in 2022, taking out Rafa and Novak back to back. I mean, there are all these signs, obviously. But I did not think he would beat Novak in three out of five sets in a Wimbledon final on a court where Novak hadn't lost in over 10 years. Yeah. And then after he won, after Novak won the first set so easily, you're just thinking, how's how's Carlitos going to win three of the next four sets to win this final? And then even when uh, Novak won the fourth, I was thinking Novak's now going to win. And lo and behold, the fifth set that Carlitos played was one of the most outstanding sets ever played in a major, say say final sets in a major final I've ever seen. So, and the way he served it out from Love 15, I mean, you got to be kidding me, the way he came up with a <laughs> more incredible drop shots and finesse with power. That's what I said. I said, you know, I was like, you know, the most amazing thing to me was that we often talk about athletic amnesia, the ability to forget what just happened. And he missed a drop shot, right? He stoned a drop shot. Then the next shot, the next point, he hit a forehand drop shot inside out. And it was like, wow, this kid is something. I know. I thought the same thing because I'm like, to me, the first drop shot miss showed that he was tight. He's human and he was struggling with your feel. And for him to come back with another drop shot, the point after he could have been <laughs> down love 30 had he stoned it like he did the first, was incredibly brave. And it, it, I don't think Novak, guess what? He was not expecting that. What are your feelings about um, the this hard court season now? Novak's already said that he's not playing Montreal these guys now have kind of, it seems like they've gotten to a place in their careers where he only needs a few tune-up matches to come into these majors and play himself into the tournament. It makes total sense. I mean, the exhaustion he would feel after uh, Roland Garros and Wimbledon so close together, two majors in such a short period of time. And he only needs the one tournament, as you said. He just needs Cincinnati and a good practice week after Cincinnati, and he's ready. He knows what to do. So. I agree. I agree with that schedule. Did you feel like I felt like that final, though, really was sort of shocking to Novak that he was like, oh, wait a second, I could lose. And now it's in his head that he can lose. Well, and you mentioned in, in, in his head, and I think Novak was taking up such a huge space in other competitors' heads, and I think Novak had been playing this beautifully, kind of like the mind game. 
during press conferences and little quotes that he would say, like, it ain't happening yet, like on court with the BBC, meaning that it's not ready to pass the guard and not ready to give it to the young players. This shows you Alcaraz to have the mental fortitude at a major final to take out, besides Rafa at Roland Garros, what's to me the other toughest assignment, what's become the last couple of years is Novak at Wimbledon. You could say Melbourne too, but I'm going to say Wimbledon's become a tougher out. What can you tell us about this Saudi situation? What are you, what have you learned? What are you hearing um, with regards to the ATP, the WTA um, playing tennis in Riyadh, playing tennis in Jeddah in the coming months, coming year? Well, I think, I guess it's inevitable um, with what's been happening um, with how, Saudi Arabia wants to have a, a major stake in some sports. So I can understand from their standpoint why tennis would be a target. I've certainly followed the golf situation very carefully. That's my other favorite sport to watch on TV right now and, and play my, as well. So it's really torn the golf world apart. And I hope that doesn't happen in the tennis world. You know, I think it's up to every individual player is like, what is your own personal values and you know, like I could have gone to South Africa to compete in the eighties. It's different. Okay. It's different, but it's still a regime that you don't endorse. So therefore I'm not going to go and compete as a, as a white player, I was not going to go to South Africa. So if I was today a player and I didn't have to go to Saudi Arabia, I didn't want to support that. I wouldn't go, but I'm not going to say sort of as Billie Jean King said, it's about engagement. And it's about trying to make slow changes, but I personally would need to wait to see more changes before I would go there to compete. It feels like the money always seems to win out. Makes the world go around, right? And how do you feel right now about the health of the WTA? Well, I think it's been a brutally difficult uh, few years, um, complicated by a lot of things. Um, Obviously, COVID at the top of the list, uh, what the tour had to do to try and continue a global sport during a global pandemic was heroic that they were able to do that. And in a women's sport, it's just harder still financially to do it. And then also the series of really wonderful stars. And I'll just start with Barty and Osaka that have not been able to, they should have been in the prime of their career and they haven't, they, they've chosen by their own accord or through, you know, some mental health issues to not be playing either retiring or taking really long causes of pregnancy um, leave of action right now for Osaka. So it's been hard. And on the men's side, of course, it's just been crazy era of, you know, the greatest ever. What's the big difference in the tours from, you know, 84 to 2023? I wish to hear that it, you had more fun and it was more camaraderie, but I don't know if that's true. Well, and honestly, I wouldn't be able to answer that question very well, except for my short, you know, nine month stint helping Donna Vekic and kind of being on her team. And that's kind of where things have headed in the last few decades. And maybe Martina started it. um, Lendl started some things back in the 80s, uh, you know, about off court training. So there certainly was a trend that started back when I was playing to have experts in, in not just as a coach or a hitting partner, but anyway. So the teams make it easier for you to be in your team and sort of be around people that you like and trust or working for you. So there's not, there are still close friendships. I mean, I know Donna's very close with Benchich and Tom Lanovich and um, Sakari and, you know, there's a few others she's really close to, but for the most part, you rely on your teams and you look around and everybody has two, three, four people. So there's not so much the need to have friendships like we did back in the day. We were in Charleston in a media partner capacity from the week before the tournament through the final ball. And my observations were similar, that the tour has become much more insular, that the players are with their teams and there's a less less sort of bouncing around to dinners and whatnot together and such. Yeah, I've got to know a few of the doubles players and I would say their world. Um, how they kind of conduct in the the double side is more like it was back in the 80s and 90s. Really small teams, maybe they share one coach or they just, you know, practice with each other and they go out. So there, there's certainly some, but the, but the biggest changes I think would be just 
you know, how many more players there are that play at a high level, the depth of the game, the more international. So I, I see some other things that are even bigger changes than just how the players relate. April 2022, you simultaneously released an interview with Simon Briggs, as well as with the tennis podcast with Catherine Whitaker, where you shared that you were in what you described as an inappropriate relationship with your much older coach for a significant period of time. What can you tell us about this problem of questionable relationships coming up on tour? Yeah. Well, when you think about our workplace, it is uh, a workplace that's different from most, right? Because it's traveling, it's staying in hotels, it's extremely stressful. The athletes a lot of times are very young and they can be placed in a position where things start to get manipulated and, and they get groomed towards all of a sudden they find themselves it, where the boundaries being crossed and there's no longer the just the professional part happening of trying to get the athlete to be a better tennis player. And then, so, so there, it needs to be, it's complicated, but the young players need education. Parents need to be educated. And, and there certainly needs to be a lot of safeguarding education for anyone on any teams that it is better for your player to just keep it professional. And I believe that hundred percent. Are there times like Kvitova just got married to her longtime coach, Yuri Vanek, right? Okay. You know, Kvitova's in her thirties. They've been, they've known each other for the longest time. There are times where it's like, it doesn't feel abusive to me, but when players are young, and they're developing their game, I really have a problem with it. There's been some movement with regards to policing and improving that, what you described as, you know, a prevalent situation. Where is that landed today? Where Where is that at? Yeah, well, there's now a director of safeguarding for the WTA tour, Lindsay Brandon, who yep. started the end of last year. She has a legal background in sports. Safeguarding is is really her specialty. So she's in charge of, um, you know, moving the WTA and, and collaborating with other organizations. The ATP tour, the ITF are two hugely important ones to collaborate with, as well as the four majors. I mean, the workplace at the majors are so important as well. So you know, I've just been trying to behind the scenes since I told my story. And now I understand it, I'd identify it more as sexual abuse because of the position of power, an older male, a coach. But these were those were different times back in the late 70s, early 80s, when things were developing and in a way that I didn't know how to stop as a, you know, mid to late teenager. Um, but I think that like, I just took a course, a safeguarding course as somebody, I want to be able to show up at a WTA tour event on Donna's team. So they're making everybody now take this online course on safeguarding. It goes through all the different kinds of abuse from emotional to sexual to physical. Um, so, uh, and, and I have an obligation to not only make sure my side of the street is hundred percent clean, but if I see anything, and I see any form of abuse or hear any kind of abuse, uh, I, I am obligated to report it. Um, and I do know there's been some reporting, um, not by me, but uh, and I know the process, it seems to be underway and working. So there'd be a report and like an investigation and then behind the scenes, all confidentially, um, the person who's been um, pointed out uh, is questioned. So this is different. And I think players now have or any support person can report, right? We now, now have a system in place to how to report. And that's really important too. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. First and foremost, how did you get good? Where does your tennis begin? <laughs> My tennis began in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, where I was born and raised. My parents loved to play the sport. My mom grew up actually in Southern California in uh, Coronado, a great tennis hotbed. And my mom's side of the family loved tennis. My dad's side of the family, I can remember playing tennis with my grandparents. So it's been a family sport for generations. And probably a big thing was that we had a yard big enough when I was nine years of age, my dad had a tennis court built on the side of the house. And I had a Prince ball machine 
And I didn't even need a coach. I could just go out and get that ball machine rolling. And so I fell in love with it basically between the age of like six and 10. And then Hang on just, a second. you just mentioned Prince. You're one of the yeah. first Prince players. Yeah. When did you start with that racket? Well, Howard Head was also from Baltimore and he had already um, reinvented skiing because he was an engineer. Howard Head, a brilliant man, not a great athlete, had trouble skiing. So he invented a ski that was easier, right? So he took that same philosophy to the tennis racket. It's too small. The sweet spot's not big enough. I'm miss hitting it all over. So, so I remember getting a demo of the Prince racket when I was 13 or 14. And I can remember going to a junior national tournament, carrying my green Prince classic. And honestly, players, family, coaches, parents, they, they were like falling over when they looked at this thing. And then I ended up getting the finals of the U.S. Open with it when I was 16. Hang on. But that racket, you played with the classic or you played with the Prince Pro? Classic first. Oh, you did? The pro, the pro was their second one. And were you a Prince player all the way through your career? No, I switched in 1987. So about almost 10 years in, mm. I switched to Yonex. So I had two rackets. Okay. I switched the summer of 87, um, right before I actually beat Chrissy for the first time. My debut with the Yonex racket was going finally stopping an 0 for 17 streak against Chrissy. You change rackets for money or you change rackets for the change of racket? Great question. I was not looking to change, but Yonex had a situation where Martina actually tinkered with her racket. She'd been a longtime Yonex player, and Steffi yep. Brock was moving to number one. And and Martina kind of was tinkering with her racket, and then Yonex was like a little bit uh, – they wanted another player, and so they offered me in the middle of the summer of 87. <laughs> but it just so happened I also loved the racket. So initially it was because of money, but then in the end – uh, I, f I fell in love with it right away. It's a great now, racket. Now, which was it, the R7 or the R22? R7. R7. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Now, but back back to your junior tennis. Um, were you, a, I mean, you had you were a nationally ranked player going buzzing all around the country. Did you play internet? No, no. I mean, a little bit. Look, I, I, I played mostly around mid-Atlantic tournaments up from Richmond up through Baltimore, Washington, D.C., but that, I'd always play the nationals. Like yeah. that's the first time I ever saw Tracy Austin. Tracy and I are just five months apart, and she was number one in the juniors at every stop. And I was pretty far off her when I joined the 12 and unders when I played nationals. But then by the my by my second year of the 12s, I lost to Tracy 0 and 1 in the finals. Like so I was getting starting to get further, like 14 and unders, I'd lose to her in the finals, like one and two. But uh I didn't play that many. I didn't do like the junior circuit like they have it now. So you're 16 years old. You go to the U.S. Open as a junior champion. Like, what? Well, how did that work that you were in that draw? Okay, so I had started to play pro tournaments in Washington D.C. I made my pro debut. There was a um, like be the same as a 500 level tournament. I got the local qualifying wild card. I won a round. Then I went to Columbus, Ohio. Went through pre qualifying, qualifying, won the tournament. It was like maybe a 250 type. So now I had a computer ranking and I played part-time. I'm in high school, regular high school, but my ranking back in the day, this is the big difference. I, I played, I won, I played like five or six tournaments and it was enough. I collected enough points. Actually, I was like, I was seated 16, my first U.S. Open. So I played enough uh, and had good results. So there you go. Wait, so you showed up at the U.S. Open 16 years old and you won six matches. I did. I did. It was uh, <laughs> really unexpected. I tell you a funny story. I was riding. I took the train out. I took this subway, like the seven train out from my uh, hotel. And it, I was practicing with Wendy Turnbull, Wendy, the rabbit Turnbull from Australia. She had lost to Chrissy the previous year in the finals of the U.S. Open. And I and we were asking questions. She asked me what, if I was seated. I said, yeah, I snuck in with the last seed, 16. And she goes, oh, that's funny. I got to the finals last year. I had the last seed. It was a 12th seed. And I said, oh, well, maybe I'll do the same thing. So that's a little bit of a mindset thing, right? Like if you have the, the right. vision and the, and the belief, it's amazing what can happen. Now, obviously, the draw fell into place, but I still had to beat Navratilova in the semis. That was my that was the win that shocked everybody. You're 10 years older than me. So when I was seven, you were 17. I was going to that tournament since I was a little kid. 
back in the 70s, it was kind of like a quite a tennis boom decade, right? I mean, you had Connors, McEnroe, Borg, Billie Jean, Chrissy, Martina. I mean, I, I remember actually the stadiums I played in, like when I played in Dallas, Moody Coliseum at SMU or Hilton Head Island uh, that NBC covered on the weekends. Uh, I remember really packed, pretty packed. busy. Yeah. Seems like you love tennis. It seems like that this this journey for you has been something very amazing, difficult times and all. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I don't, we'll never know. Like if I, if that relationship hadn't caused so much turmoil, could I, would I have, you know, gotten to another final during that five and a half years? I actually did play better in the years following when we split. Um, but I think it was really multiple facets. I wasn't quite as good as the champions of that era. And the champions of that era, I'll just name three that I ran into in yeah. semis or quarters of majors often, Chrissy, Martina, and Steffi Groff. Yeah. And for me, the timing of my career, those were my big three that I bumped into. So I, I look at me as like the Burditch, Ferrer, Sangha of, of my particular window, because I got yeah. back to a lot of semis. I never played anyone in a semifinals of a major that wasn't a future Hall of Famer. I can remember a few times when draws got a little easier and openings in the women's game and there'd be somebody ranked 60 in the semis of a major. I was like, well, why didn't that ever happen to me? I mean, the one semi I won was over number one in the world, Martina. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that doubles carried more gravitas back when you were just, you and Martina were, was there a bigger importance on doubles than there is now? Well, certainly in my era, you had some of the greatest ever play both, like Billie Jean King, Martina, even Chrissy won doubles majors. And then on the men's side, what McEnroe did, at yeah. getting number one in both at the same time was really fantastic. Um, but you so, won 100 tournaments. I mean, what's that like to be in the winner's circle for like 30, what was you must have won like 30 tournaments a year for three well, years? Well, you know, it was what I... I love doubles. I loved it in the juniors. So um, it spoke to me. Uh, and so I actually won, I won 79 with Martina. And so I think there's like another 30 I won with other partners. So that was really like my last major was with Natasha Zvera of Bela, Bela Russian. We had never well. played a tournament before. We won the 91 US Open. So yeah, doubles, you had more top players playing, but in each and every passing decade, the sport has put more and more emphasis on major singles results. And so if you have anything that you think is going to take away, and especially on the men's side, three out of five set format in the singles, you're not going to play doubles. It's it's not good business a lot of times to play doubles. No, and you know, we saw it last year with Kyrgios. He played with Kokonakis. They played a vicious, rough match the night before he had to play uh, catching off, and that kind of blew his shot. I was trying to watch some of you and Martina. Did you always have it that you played the deuce and she played the ad? This is crazy. So one small period of time in our eight and a half, nine year partnership, we switched and I moved over to the left side. Martina played the right side or the deuce side. And it was in the middle of our 108 or nine match win streak. Um, and it was Martina's coach at the time, Mike Estep, really thought. And it goes to like Martina's team always feeling Let's try something they maybe even get better. And I was kind of like, what? Why would you change? Like, I, I was like, I didn't really want to, but I thought, well, I we had the versatility to do it. Fortunately, we did not lose when we switched, but we weren't as good. So we did switch back. Forehands out wide were better than the forehands down the middle. Well, the other thing is both of our backhand volleys, mm -hmm. I mean, we had good forehand volleys too. But our backhand volleys rock solid. And I'm telling you that if you can cover the middle of a doubles court, at least the era that we played mm. with, with solid in the middle with your backhand volleys, that was mm. tough. That was really, we were difficult to go through. I asked you earlier about your rackets. Do you feel like maybe tennis should have put some kind of rules in place regarding technology? Do you feel like maybe the strings and the rackets have changed the sport in a way for maybe the worse? It's interesting. I, I'm glad you brought up string because I think the strings in the last you know 20 years has probably been the biggest change uh, in how much spin that the technology of the string allows you to put on. Um, 
I think it's okay. It's funny, a, a spaghetti strung racket that was like quite the controversy back in the seventies yeah. showed up in the ESPN green room. Richard Evans brought it to John McEnroe and it was laying around for days in our green room. Now that was a technology that it, and it was banned. It was seen as unfair because as spaghetti string, they had like double string. Yeah. It is crazy. And the ball could, the ball would go all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I think it's reasonable. I think golf has bigger issues with what's going on, and they're wrestling with it right now, what to do. Um, I, yeah. I, I feel like it's okay. Did you like being a pro player? Did you like being on tour? Was it a great thing to go from city to city and following the sun around the world? Is it as Was it as great as we all think, those of us that can't play that well? You know, it's like any job. It had times where it was just unbelievable and you were just um on a roll both singles doubles you love the cities you were going to stay in a nice hotels travel i think was a little less stressful back in the day um so i i had a for the most part a blast i can certainly remember some times where i was physically off i was still trying to compete i was struggling emotionally but uh for the most part, I look back as one of the greatest jobs I ever could have had. When I think about the countries I was able to visit, to, mm. to bring in travel into your workplace and experience different cultures and different people, it's just, it's it was a gift. Your best moment on tour? Ooh. You know, probably it was special. Actually, the first Wimbledon, first major Martina and I won was on my 19th birthday on center court. They wow. sang happy birthday to me. and. I don't know. I didn't know it was going to be the first of uh, 20. Um, but that that the first major I won was was pretty memorable. I'd say the Olympic gold with Xena. Yeah. Uh, eight, seven years later, 88 Seoul, Korea was a really important moment for me. I'm a huge sports fan. I can remember Olympic Games since Me Mexico City, 68. Uh, so that was really important for me. How did you segue out and into broadcasting? While I was playing. So I, I'm like, I'm like the first Chris Eubanks, uh, uh, you know, Taylor Townsend tennis channels done a great job of bringing some current players who are either willing to do it or have a, you know, an injury or maternity leave. So in 1981, I'm only 19 years of age, CBS had the U S open and they didn't have a full-time female broadcaster. They would occasionally get Virginia Wade, uh, Billie Jean King later on, obviously Mary Carrillo. So I was, I was somebody they had their eye on, I think, since I got the finals in 78, how I handled myself around the microphone and in the PR side of things. So a big important moment for me was when I said yes to um, CBS's request if, I, if my playing schedule allowed. So that started my broadcasting, 1981 CBS. And then ESPN, similar, I lost early in 1990 Australian Open. And I was asked if I'd stay, stay around and, and help them be on their team. And I've been on an ESPN's team ever since. But wait a second. Am I delusional or were we colleagues? You wouldn't have remembered me. I was low level. But in 1999, were you part of the HBO team at Wimbledon? Yeah, I think for one year, their, their last year. Yeah. It was. I, as sort of like <laughs> a reporter and out on the grounds. Yes. You did it one year. Yeah, one year. actually. Uh, I think I may have been working for the BBC then anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. BBC was one of my first really cool lead jobs and also Channel 7 Australia. So um, I don't know. It's just I, I took the opportunity while I was playing because sometimes when you stop playing, you just don't know what opportunities are going to be there. I feel like you've bounced around that that when we first started seeing you, you were the third person you know, sliding into the player guest box, talking to the coaches and stuff. Um, and now you you serve as the lead lead, the straw that stirs the whole drink on the Tennis Channel broadcast. You serve different roles on the ESPN broadcast. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things, uh, it's a, it was another sliding door moment for me back in 90, it's the end of 96. My career was almost over. I'd been working for part-time for ESPN for six, seven years. And my boss at the time asked me if I'd be willing to learn the play-by-play -play position. And I said, yes. And so it was actually, you know, starting the fall in 96, where I started to do play-by-play -play at times, 
I still did analyst. And, and then they brought in more of this RF reporter, they call it courtside commentator, yeah. starting in 05, 06. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then one of my highest profile things that I've done, you alluded to it, was what I would do at the US Open inside Ash with roving interviews of coaches or celebrities or and and from the courtside commentary position, they would free me up. You know, you're not tied to a a landline, so to speak. You 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 know, you can get your equipment and be mobile. And I've really loved doing that through the years. I recall you famously asking a player why she quit. There's something that we hadn't really seen before. Um, was a post-match interview you did. I want to say it was with Sperlea, but I have it wrong. It wasn't Sperlea. I don't know. There was one where there's one one moment I regret where my tone when I interviewed, uh, I think it was Caroline Wozniacki as she was making her first big run at the US Open. This was the year I think that Kleisters won it as a mom in 09. And and uh and Wozniacki, I think was gonna play Janina Wickmeyer. And the way I said you're going to play. And this was goes back to my having never played anyone other than a grand slam. Yeah. I mean, a former hall of yeah. famer in the semis, she was playing Janina Wickmeyer. And the way I said Wickmeyer was in this sarcastic voice. Yeah. I regretted it. I, I, it kind of came out organically, but that, that was one moment that was kind of like, I got thumbs down by, by people on that one. Now I happened to be in San Diego when I, just for my observation, it seemed like you put the relationship together with Vekic. What transpired that you ended up ingratiating yourself into that program and she made a great run there. Then she played well in Mexico. Then you guys were in Australia. She played well in Australia. Seems like this has been a very productive thing. It was a total accident. I I was in LA at home the week of the San Diego 500 in the middle of October. And I didn't have a lot on my schedule for that week. And I decided actually the weekend of the qualifying to drive down to Barnes Tennis Center. My mom grew up in San Diego and I'm it, everything around San Diego tennis is near and dear to me. So I wanted to go down and just be a fan of women's tennis and look around. I wanted to talk to some player council members if I could, not at a major about safeguarding. So Pagula was playing down there, Donna Vekic, who's on the player council. So I really went down there with my own agenda. That was stacked um, down there. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> Spiontek was playing, Sabalenka. I mean, anyway, so then Donna got in. I watched her qualifying match, beat Lauren Davis. And we started a conversation about her tennis before we got into safeguarding. And I had some things to say that I felt she was open to the input. And that's how we got started. I think I've just brought some clarity of how she should use her power game and her intimidating style and just have her be more committed to doing it. You talk about her style being intimidating. I feel like she she reminds me of like, like a more athletic, like Miloslav Machir, like the way she can kind of crack flat and sort of roll balls off both sides. And I feel like she's got incredible hands and she can sort of like misdirect like she can, she can hit that ball. She can hit the forehand inside in, inside out. She's got a, she hits the ball very, very clean and flat. And I think she's tough to deal with. Yeah. She's a great ball striker uh, for sure. Her timing, she doesn't need a lot of reps to have pretty good timing. She's got those compact strokes, really great power. The thing is, you know, none of us are strengths in everything unless you're Alcaraz, I guess, right now. But, you know, Donna's got to work on things like just keeping her movement. It's like hard to gain a half a step here and there when you can. And, um, you know, I've also tried to help a little bit with the mindset and just staying, you know, sending positive messages during mass matches. And anyway, it's been fun. I have had a great time. And now will you be with her in at the Open? I think you said you I'm going to be helping uh, around yeah. my broadcast schedule. ESPN and Tennis Channel have been really cooperative and and it's it's not easy and i've been a, it's first time i've had this go round where i'm trying to do two things it's been done before and I, I don't know it's like something i think i would have regretted had i stepped away from tennis or at the end of my tennis years if i hadn't dipped my toe in coaching because i feel like my decades of tennis knowledge as a broadcaster as a player just my tennis iq has never been better than it is now and obviously unfortunately i don't play very well anymore, but my IQ is still pretty good. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. I just say it. This is word associated. I say it. You say what comes in your mind. 
ready? Okay. Your favorite racket? I'd say Prince Classic, the one I got the US Open Finals in. How did you string your racket? I didn't really care. You don't know what string? No, I, I got for a while and then got actually synthetic. But honestly, I was not a player that was overly obsessed. Size of your grip? Four and a half. Continental, one grip for everything? Just about. One grip slightly more around uh, on the forehand. But serve, volley, backhand, we're all the same grip. Your favorite tournament as a player? Uh, Hilton Head Island was something special back in the 70s and 80s. Wow. Why? I've heard this, but I'm curious. Yeah. A combination of atmosphere, family fun, softball game, great camaraderie, fun food. I love seafood, fishing, golf. I mean, it was just like a blast. It was like being at a resort, having a working vacation. Your favorite tournament now? Getting back to the Australian Open this year, first time in three years, I realized I love that tournament. Your best moment in the broadcast booth? I'd say working with Mary Jo Fernandez, a couple of back-to-back Australian Open women's finals when Capriotti came through in some momentous wins, especially over Hingis. That was something special. Do you save your credentials? Yes. What do you do with them? They're just all stacked in one big drawer in my, right? I could go get them if you wanted. Cheating in tennis, cheating and gamesmanship in tennis. Yeah, well, they're two different things. There's there there should not be any cheating unless it has something to do with the doping, like escaping doping rules, because your team, your medical team knows something that doping control doesn't. So that would be the main kind of cheating. Gamesmanship happens every week, every day for decades and decades since the start of time. So I, it's a part of the game. Medical timeouts? Sometimes needed, other times part of gamesmanship. I think some of us are a little exasperated by some of the behavior we're seeing. Do you just consider it all fair in, in war? Um, do you have a specific one? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're seeing players take, you know, medical timeouts, uh, down, you know, down break points and, and get coming off the court. We're seeing long bathroom breaks. We're seeing, you know, we just saw a player erasing a, a, a mark <laughs> with her yeah. foot. Yeah. Well, I think, look, you can do things to try and upset the opponent. It's it's really, to me, part of the game. It's part of any sport is trying to get inside the head, whether it's, you know, team teams that do the, what do they, what do they call that? Like bad uh, talking back and forth, you know, the, it's just a part of it. And if it upends you too much, then you need to work on yourself because it's not going to hundred percent go away. But I do think officials are looking to stop it a little bit more. Martina. Greatest. And the reason I'm in the Hall of Fame. Chrissy. Why did I approach to her backhand so much? Chrissy, uh, can I just say, I know it's supposed to be one word. Those two, what they've been through medically the last year, that article that Sally Jenkins wrote in the Washington Post, their story is continues. The greatest rivalry in sports continues with this amazing friendship and shared difficult relationships. I have so much admiration for them both. Hanna Mandlikova. Talent times 10. Does the daughter have a shot to do something special? Uh, I don't know if she has the size or the power to do something special, but I think she can be a a solid pro. Tracy Austin. Tough as nails. It's sad that her career couldn't play out longer because yeah. of injury. Um, but she was one of the greatest young players in the history of our sport and came from one of the great tennis families. Steffi Graf. Forehand. I just, boy, oh boy, one of the greatest shots I ever faced. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the queen of the court. If you could be the queen of tennis and make a change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, no aggravation. 
what would it be? I think I'd try and figure out how to speed up play a little bit more and, and try to make tennis more appealing to broadcasters. There's just too many question marks and length of time. I don't know. I think I'd, I'd study some of that just to make and have more access to fan access. I thought with Chris Eubanks at Wimbledon, when he allowed that earbud and, you know, and Donna did it once, I think I would have players understand if they don't connect with fans better, we are not going to grow as a sport. What's happened to the sport that it seems like we become so niche as opposed to bigger? Well, there's been some times where we have busted out of that niche. And I can just tell you last year covering the U.S. Open and everything around Serena's last tournament. You know, there was an example of how the sport was just blown wide open to be the most inclusive I'd ever seen it. And, um, you know, I'd like our sport, actually, one of the changes I'd like to see is our greatest work on for the years leading up to their retirement, work on how these all time greats are going to still contribute to the betterment of pro tennis, the betterment of tennis, not just pro tennis. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk about it often, but, you know, he is missing in action. Andre and Steffi are very um, scarce. Capriati is nowhere to be found um, for, you know, for sad reasons. But it would be interesting if we worked our our legends back in in a meaningful way. For sure, 100%. And I feel like it's an army. It's a wasted army of people who love the sport. Um, So maybe that's something that can change in the future. You know, I've been trying to get on your radar for quite some time. You know, I I didn't share this, but I ball boyed for you. Uh, Uh I can't recall. Was it a WTA event at the Hall of Fame or was it an exhibit? It was. Yeah. Yeah. I I ball boyed for you and Martina. I'm certain of it at the Hall of Fame. uh, Okay. So 1983. Yeah. That was the first year there was a WTA tour be the same as like a 500 level tournament in Newport. It lasted for about 10 years and any grass court tournament where I could earn computer points and prize money, Shriver showed up. Pam Shriver, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and thank you for you know all your contributions. Hey, thanks, Craig. And I hope my contributions can continue for a, a long time still. No doubt. We'll see you in a few weeks. Pam Shriver, you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Pam Shriver. And I do encourage everyone to listen to Catherine Whitaker's interview with Pam from April 20th, 2022 on the Tennis Podcast. Huge thank you to Deodora. Use my code APPROVED, A-P-P-R-O-V-E-D, in all caps, at hollabirdsports.com for 15% off all Deodora Performance Tennis Shoes. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.